Resilient Cyber Podcast brings you conversations from diverse cybersecurity professionals, ranging from executives, subject matter experts, and aspiring entrants. Today's diverse threat landscape requires systems that can withstand a variety of cyber incidents, remaining trustworthy and secure. Thank you for joining us on the Resilient Cyber Podcast. My name is Chris Hughes. Unfortunately, I don't have my co-host with me, Dr. Nikki Robinson, today. She had a family emergency. Uh, but today I'm being joined by Jim Perkins, who currently works at Microsoft. Uh, he focuses on emerging technologies and national security space. Uh, he's actually a product manager at Microsoft Azure, where he works on rugged edge compute devices for the defense and intelligence communities. After 11 years in active duty, Jim also is currently still serving as a major in the Army Reserves with the 75th Innovation Command. He's also active in various uh, community groups, such as Defense Entrepreneurs Forum and the Joint Software Alliance, which we're going to touch on as well, both two nonprofit communities for innovation and technology within national security. So Jim, thanks for joining me. Thank you so much for having me on, Chris. Definitely. So, you know, just to start it off and kind of level set, you know, tactical edge cloud computing, what is that exactly? A lot of folks may have not heard the term or they heard it, but they don't really know what that means. Can you give us a bit of insight on that? Absolutely. Um, I, I think most people are familiar with the idea of the cloud, you know, centralized compute resources, virtualization, economies of scale. And then so edge computing is being able to push those resources away from, you know, centralized data centers into edge nodes, whether it's a, a vehicle, man portable, something closer to your office. And then the, the tactical flavor is, you know, really pushing it out to the limits of austerity, where Communications, you know, your your local infrastructure of public fiber networking, things like that are scarce. And then really adding on constraints around space, weight, power, and even electromagnetic uh, emissions and things like that. That's that's really what it what the spectrum sums up. And it, it runs from you know large scale units down to small silicon devices, kind of at the IoT level, but that's that's the umbrella of it. Yeah, I think from what I've seen of it, you know, can kind of range the spec, uh, run the spectrum, like you said, from like a modular data center all the way down to like kind of a tablet uh, handheld type device that you may take with you on a tactical operation or something like that. So as far as that goes, you know, with regards to the DOD and the military, even the, the intelligence community, you know, what are some of the advantages uh, that this type of technology provides? And then also like, what are some challenges that still exist within this space? That's like the bread and butter of what I work on every day. At the end of the day, you know, the the bleeding edge users for edge computing or tactical edge computing are the military and uh, intelligence customers. More than any other segment, they are pushing the boundaries of it. And the, the best part is just like, you know, if you're de- developing, you know, utensils for people with arthritis, that's going to accrue value back to your core customers. Well, if we can build something that's rugged, power efficient, durable, and designed to, to be able to run in the austere conditions, that's going to just generate even more value for people who are doing autonomous driving elsewhere. For the military, th- these advantages, like if, if you're working in an austere location, whether it's in a war zone, a humanitarian response effort, where you have to bring power generation, previously you're working pen and paper with battery-powered line-of-sight radio communications, and that was kind of it. But now you're being able to bring machine learning and local inferencing for video processing so that you can fly a drone over an area and look at high water marks or, you know, disaster damage. You can look what roofs that, you know, got destroyed by a hurricane and need uh, tarp repair or countless other capabilities that you're, you're bringing there. The downside, frankly, is this presents just new challenges that people haven't thought about. They're used to working with computers in their day job, but they never thought about power. 
They never thought about heat cooling, HVAC, you know, or taking new dependencies on, on, on these things that it's just different. When, when you add in a new system, you've got to think about the second order of effects of it. So um, it's, it's a really cool problem to have. It's, it's unlocking many new use cases, but changing the way people have to think about planning for missions. Yeah, it's a fascinating, fascinating way to look at. It. You know, I think a lot of people associate this kind of uh, tactical edge computing they associate with like military operations, but you know, people forget that the military is also involved with humanitarian response and things like you mentioned, natural disaster. So there's a lot of different use cases around that. You know, I know you also are involved with various organization groups that we talked about, like the Defense Entrepreneurs Forum and Joint Software Alliance. Can you tell us a bit about those and why those are important to the DoD and intelligence communities? Absolutely. So. Broadly, you know, organizations that are highly security focused tend to be more bureaucratic, frankly, because of the fact that security and process are, are driven in, in that inherent way. They want to be these are organizations that want to be resilient um, in the face of a catastrophic event, you know, national emergency. They, they have to be able to keep running. And so that bureaucracy is a survival mechanism, but it also inhibits our ability to grow and think differently. The Defense Entrepreneurs Forum was an organization that was founded in uh, 2012 as a nonprofit by a variety of sort of junior folks from across the national security space in the United States primarily. And it was really focused on giving voice to these junior level change agents, people who wanted to be able to have an outsized impact with, within their organizations. That took off and it's continued to thrive as an organization by empowering folks to, instead of celebrating senior leaders that want to talk about transforming something, it's, no, this, these are the people who are out, out there, you know, bringing 3D printing to masses or bringing, you know, Raspberry Pis to, you know, replicate a $5 million vehicle-based system. And then sort of as a secondary offshoot or something that was growing in there um, was this community of software developers. There's been a really recent push in the last four years or so to bring software development in-house in national security. For the last 45 years, they've really pushed that outside. They, they Frankly, they didn't even have people that were competent software developers by modern standards. They had people that were writing different things or maybe type reliability engineers, things like that, but not developers. And so we've built this community, the, the Joint Software Alliance or JSOFT, to really just try to support the people that are at the front lines, like pushing code into production at variety of classifications, especially in this highly restricted space. You know, people that are doing computing for state and local governments, they, they have to meet certain requirements. If you're doing it for the federal government at large, you have to meet different requirements. But if you're doing it for national security customers, you have to meet some of the strictest requirements available and it's bureaucratic to say the least. So we wanted to really just uh, invest in the people that are that are doing that because the national security community wasn't quite taking care of it. Yeah, so definitely. Sure. You actually, uh, you touched on a couple of things I wanted to uh, speak about there, like the Defense Entrepreneurs Forum I actually attended the DefX software event last week, I think it was. And it was really, really great to hear from like all these different innovators within and outside of the DOD, you know, from technology companies and others. One thing they had was a panel from folks from the uh, swap study that was done, I, I believe, through DIU. Is that correct? Uh, Defense Innovation Board. Um, yeah, DIU, oh, okay, okay. not part of it, but uh, yeah. the, the DIB was the one that drove it. DIB. Yeah, so the DIB swap study. And one thing they talked about is, uh, you know, the, the conclusions that they came up with and how some of those recommendations are being implemented now within DOD to innovate and change the way things are done and kind of tackle some of that bureaucracy and maintain that competitive edge among, you know, adversaries, of course. But one thing they also talked about is like how many senior leaders haven't really read the study yet. You know, they've been in meetings where someone says, oh, I've never I've never heard of that study. You know, I think within DOD, something I see not even within just that study, but we have a tendency to, uh, you know, kind of admire problems rather than address them. Like I, every year I'm hearing about, you know, workforce challenges associated with DOD or technology challenges associated with DOD. And it's like we keep reiterating and restating the problems, but not addressing them. I mean, as someone who's 
working both for a technology company, but also still involved with the military. You know, what is your thought on that? Oh, man, there's so much to, to chew on there. And I'm, I'm going to try to start with like a few simple nuggets. One of the first things a, a smart friend of mine, Josh Marcuse, says often, the DoD doesn't have a tech acquisition problem, it has a tech adoption or implementation problem. It's like, we know how to buy things. We've sort of solved that problem. It, it was a problem for a while, but it's now getting the, the people to integrate this technology into day-to-day operations. The, the second part of this goes back to, I, I think it was Bill Clinton's campaign in like the 90s. It's the people, stupid. It's not a tech problem anymore. Like, again, we figured out how to buy some of these things. To a certain extent, we figured out how to use them. But we, you know, when we look at workforce challenges, we can recruit all day, but we can't retain because of the, the, the fact that you're taking a person who, you know, they just graduated or they're, you know, relatively they're in the workforce and they're used to working on an enterprise IT company or in-house at you know any Fortune 500 company, and you bring them into the, the DoD where they're not allowed to deploy a simple web application into production because they haven't filled out 17 forms of you know compliance paperwork. And it's like this is silly, and so it's it's not just that one person who's the developer, but it's the layers of people above them that also need to be you know re I hate to say re-educated. That's a sort of like a loaded term, but that need to help understand the value that these people bring into the organization. That's that's really kind of the start of it. There, there's so much more to it than that, but those are kind of the, the, the wave tops. Yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, I, I think that, like you said, we can recruit people, but retaining them is, is, is definitely a challenge. And I think, you know, as you mentioned, some of the issues is, uh, you know, the ability to deploy things and the red tape and the bureaucracy. And then there's also, you know, disparities among compensation. But there's also draws to public service, you know, around mission and Absolutely. impact and, and the things you get to work on. Uh, I've seen some really promising efforts uh, through you know, Defense Digital Services and 18F, for example, you know, them b- being able to bring in some really tech savvy folks into government and do great work. And then you, m- you mentioned JSoft as well and like kind of the outsourcing of software developers and software development among the government. You know, what are your thoughts around how changes can be made, you know, maybe from a workforce perspective or even like within the military career? I've seen some changes made to establish like digital engineering career fields and things like that within the military. You know, what are your thoughts on that front to help retain some of those folks and, and provide a career pathway within the military? You are, you're hitting on so many things I, I love talking about. Uh, the, the first thing, just to be clear, like if I haven't said this, people who say that money is the challenge, that's their throwaway answer. That's not the problem. People are called to service. And whether it's, you know, a, a two-year stint with DDS or, you know, I, I spent 11 years in uniform uh, well, on, on active duty, but there's plenty of people who serve the military for, you know, three to five years, not making a career, but they just want to serve their country. No one's taking their money to the grave and they'd be more than happy to, to take a, a nominal pay cut for a couple of years to be able to do something good. So when it comes to workforce challenges and some of the things that we need to be making, you're right. We are making some some headway. Uh, the Army and the Air Force in particular are both that I know are both making some changes to create uh, career fields so that you can have a digital technologist, uh, particularly like a software developer life in, in the military. The National Security Commission for AI uh recently released their final report last month and chapter six in it is all about uh, workforce development. Everything from basically creating an entire new service academy that's computer science focused for building out kind of like a, a digital talent core for for not, not just the military or, or sort of not just one branch of the military, but for the military at large, sort of the way we have a space force, we have, you know, cyber communities, but essentially just creating like Almost if you think of like a branch agnostic medical community or a branch agnostic IT community where they can go there. It doesn't matter whether you're building application and production for the Air Force, or the Army. It's all sort of the same governance controls. 
And so being able to move around in that space is one of the new ways that we're, we're trying to look at it. And then there, there's a variety of other flexible opportunities for people to you know, sort of be directly commissioned into the military to sort of jump up in pay grade and sort of try to meet that pay differential, and but also give them the opportunity to have a little more influence. There's there's a variety of ways that we're, we're looking at it. I still don't quite think that we're getting after the, the true problem, frankly, because at the end of the day, unfortunately, you have people who've been in the military, the senior years in the military have been in the military for 30 plus years, 30 to 40 years. And they have lived in this Luddite-centric environment where, you know, these iconic green notebooks and printed paper, like that was the way things are working. They don't have email on their phone. They don't, they can't walk into a conference room and say, Alexa, start my meeting. Like that, these are just things that are so, you know, the hardest part about getting out of the military is, you know, having ubiquitous technology and not having your jaw hit the floor every time that something normal happens. And so it's getting them to understand what the art of the possible is and then how to truly leverage the people that are in their force, even the people that are currently there. You have people graduating from a variety of top tier schools and degrees in computer science that then go become an infantry officer or, you know, an Air Force maintenance officer. And they can build you amazing things because a lot of the stuff that we need is just sort of banal back end applications for, you know, logging and data and, you know, data analysis and dashboards. Like you just need to be able to empower those people and charge them with doing something better than what they currently have, you know, with existing systems. And there's, there's a lot of, challenges that there because the legacy that we're dealing with is systems that were built that don't have, you know, available APIs that you can, you know, scrape data from. And so it, it's it's a not an easy problem to solve, but there there is some senior reader education that needs to go on for them to really understand, like, these are the right places to push on and these are the right areas to pull on. The, the, the problem isn't entirely getting the right people in the door. You have a lot of the right people already in your in your organizations. That's that's sort of it in a nutshell. Yeah, no, I think you're I think you're spot on. A lot of it's just empowering those people that are already within the ecosystem to to make the impact needed. Um, one thing I was curious about to get your perspective on is because you kind of your position at this unique uh, space of intersection between military and you know technology companies, right? You know, we always see like a, a government trying to adopt commercial technologies and commercial best practices, uh, but then we also um, you know see in some cases pushback from technology companies in terms of working with the government. And some people like to make the case that there's a mutually beneficial relationship between, you know, thriving U.S.-based technology companies and then national security. You know, what what are your thoughts on that? You know, I, I think that basically there's a mutually beneficial situation. Uh, if you're based in the U.S. and you're doing business there, you have a vested interest in having a strong national security. What are your thoughts on that? Obviously, you know, I'm super biased because I work in national security technology. So I, I over-index on this. But I, I think you're absolutely right that, yes, there there are strong incentives for us all to have national security interests in mind. That said, it is dishonest for us to think that any stakeholder, you know, in this discussion is going to just sort of come to the table blindly and and not have their own trust considerations that need to be evaluated. The the DOD can get uh, upset with the, the private sector for you know, not wanting to partner with them. But the DOD also has to recognize they've done a variety of things that have violated the trust of these companies. And so it's it's not entirely on the other side. And, you know, trust is uh, earned in drops and lost in buckets. And so working together slowly and, you know, sort of painstakingly, frankly, to to build this trust, starting with with small wins, like that's, at the end of the day, it's where we have to go. And, and no one's turning their back on the national government, but as different administrations come and go or different priorities come and go, obviously it's going to ebb and flow. 
I also think that there's some, when you go back to the private sector, there's some realization of the implications of the technology they're building. You, you can build something you think is totally, again, banal. You know, it's we're building a social media platform. How is this a national security thing? Oh, let me tell you how that's a national security challenge or, you know, countless other, especially at the, the hardware level, you know, we're talking about national security implications. It's totally fair to recognize that both sides have skin in the game, but it's also important, as any shrewd negotiator would say, to, to recognize that we need to find that, that win-win situation. And there are plenty of them as long as people continue to come back to the table because it's a multi-shot negotiation. Like, we're going to try again. We're going to restart things. And so I'm, I'm, I'm always optimistic that it's, it's going to get better. I think more and more people are recognizing that we do have shared interests but we just have to be honest with ourselves about what things we, you know, we did wrong in the, in the first place and how we can make that better. Yeah. I think, uh, I think humility and like, uh, communication honestly would go a long way on that front. Um, just to pivot a bit, you know, I've also heard you say that the future of national security is uh, digital technology integration. Uh, so uh, with the ag- increased growth of things such as cloud computing, DevSecOps, you know, modernization, uh, what roles do those play in national security? Great question. So I don't, I don't know who sort of, teed this up, but, um, you know, one way of looking at it is that like the, the, uh, the F-35, it's a, a fifth generation fighter. It is not a fighter jet with a computer on board. It is a flying edge compute device that can do Mach 7 or something like that, 12 Gs. You know, that's that's what it is. There's some crazy stat, and I, I forget where to cite it, but like the, the U.S. automotive industry hired more, and it might even be like orders more, like eight times more, software engineers uh, starting in like 2017, then mechanical engineers, because software is becoming a new, like a core part of all of the things that we do, whether people want to believe it or not. Um, and in the national security space, you know, we need software to make people more efficient for everything from, you know, command and control communications to data processing. We're, we're collecting more video footage and, you know, intelligence off of different platforms. So that's, that's where this integration is, is coming from because it's, we, we can no longer try to say, oh, well, we're the military. We don't need software. Like, yeah, you do. You absolutely do. You need it in-house. You need it. Partners, systems integrators. It's going to be a, a very big part of it. So that's all of the topics you just mentioned between cloud computing, modernization. These are all out of the priorities that we have in the national security space. To me, there's, there's nothing more important than those ones. All of the other strategic threat priorities that we think about are dependent on our ability to get this strategy right. And if I can offer getting that strategy right depends on people, not technology. Yeah, just uh, to follow up with that, you know, I've heard people say that the next the next, you know, domain obviously of war is going to be a cyber one. And you mentioned like a lot of the senior leadership has been around a long time. You know, they're used to traditional ways of conflicts and and things like that. Um, you know, how do we get that senior leadership to see like the imperative of the software, uh, of the modernization, of the technology in relation to conflicts among nations? So honestly, I got to uh, toss this one out to two people who are doing it well, or I guess maybe four at this point. Shout out to August Cole and Peter Singer. They've, they've written and created this own genre of FICINT, fictional intelligence. So taking emerging technology that's highly researched and putting it into a fictional uh, national security story context. They, they wrote Ghost Suite and Burn In, two fantastic books that really paint this vivid picture of what next generation conflict looks like. Because it it's not tanks rolling around on on battlefields. It's an integration of cybersecurity, information operations, and you know everything from micro robotics, edge computing, stuff like that, all merging together. 
And then Admiral Davridis retired and Elliot Ackerman also just released an, another book. I think it's called 2034. Very similar, you know, next generation conflict or very near future conflict. Um, and it's all helping to inform senior leaders. The challenge is getting them to read these books, but hey, we can lead a horse to water. Yeah, I think uh, I'll say I haven't read those, but I definitely look forward to checking them out. And then as someone who works in the cyberspace, you know, and watching what's happened in the last, you know, several years, I would say we're already there in, in to some extent watching some of the actions and the activities that have occurred. And so I was going to ask as well, you know, knowing the importance of digital technology in relation to national security, like how does the DOD as a community overcome some of the challenges that we see, you know, whether it's the workforce with IT and cyber, uh, protests among major acquisitions uh, such as cloud, um, you know, to ensure that we can appropriately adopt and enable these digital technologies and get them into the warfighter's hands that need them. And I know it's a big, big question, but if you had to give just a few, a few recommendations, obviously, like, you know, what are some things that come to mind right away? Again, this goes back to people and the the national security community. We are a slow sort of second mover, but but we learn fast. And there are some amazing people who are helping to drive these changes to lead us in the future. Paul Puckett in the Army uh, Enterprise Cloud Management Office is one of those people where he's he's brilliant. He understands that you know some of the things that are limiting our ability to adopt software is not. The software or the people that are it's not the customer it's not the people that are building the software for us it's the way that we write contracts and you know set predefined limits of if you reuse ip you're going to make less money off of this contract than the previous one which limits our ability to use infrastructure as code or other you know templatized capabilities that's us just shooting ourselves in the foot and making it harder for us to you know scale things in the future and th- th- that's just that's just one again it goes back to people getting smart people recognizing that we have admitting that you have a problem and then finding a person who's who's competent enough you know to to actually take it on truly that's that's the way we're going to be able to get through this there's there's not a simple answer but that's that's where my optimism lies yeah definitely i will say as someone who was you know former active duty air force myself and then a navy civilian uh you know and have been around this space for some time you know while there's a lot of challenges i will say things look promising very promising more than they have in the past and i'm excited about where know, DOD and technology is headed within the government. It's it's hard or it's easy to get pessimistic if you live and breathe this every day and you feel like you're hitting bureaucracy constantly. But we are moving in the right direction. It's it's slow. I wish it was faster, but things are actually getting better. Yeah, I, I agree with you there. So with that said, I did want to wrap up with our usual question we ask all of our guests, you know, what does cyber resilient mean to you? And then, you know, given your role and your experience, I'm going to ask you to put a national security spin on it, you know, what does cyber resilient mean from a national security perspective? I, I knew this was coming. My simple answer is highly available. And that's because I, I work for Enterprise Cloud. So that's that's one of our, you know, uh, foot stomp words. And in in the tactical edge space, you know, this is if, if you're taking one server out to the field, you need to find a way to make it resilient so that when when it's going down, you still have a resource available to get your mission done. Because it's not just, you know, compromising your systems, but also just you didn't bring the right batteries, you know, enough batteries and being able to uh, work through it. There's there's countless other layers to that. But that's I, I think people in the national security space, for one thing, like the, the word cyber or the cybers, as we like to joke around, people sort of it, it's sort of like a loaded term. And people think that it's all about, you know, offensive cyber oper- operations or defensive cyber operations. But at the end of the day, there's there's actually a good part of it that is much more nuanced around just making sure that your you know, software and hardware defined systems are highly available to your your users when they need them so that they've they've got the, the resources to get the mission done. That's the way I see it. 
Um, maybe that's, yeah. maybe that's bias based on what I currently work on. No, no, I, 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 you know, I focus on cloud a lot myself, and uh, I always traditionally think of it as like you know the traditional benefits of cloud computing, um, you know, hyperscale, you know, elasticity, on demand, you know, availability, those kind of things. But I think what's interesting is the the work that you're doing is like when when you have situations where that's not always the case. You don't always have connectivity. You don't always have power, and that's where you really need to be resilient is in those use cases. So, with that said. I definitely appreciate you joining us today and uh, thank you for everyone who tuned in as well. Thank you. Thanks, Chris.